From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Ten months ago, President Donald Trump announced the negotiation of a NAFTA replacement deal. I have long contended that NAFTA was perhaps the worst trade deal ever made. Since NAFTA's adoption, the United States racked up trade deficits totaling more than $2 trillion. And it's a much higher number than that. Last week, Mexico was the first country to ratify the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Canada is expected to follow suit soon. In the U.S., however, not all American lawmakers are convinced the USMCA would be a better deal than NAFTA. Democrats have threatened to block it, and a few key Republicans are withholding support unless the administration makes some concessions on tariffs. And they're not the only critics. A group of University of Georgia professors estimates that this state would lose nearly $900 million dollars if adopted. Jeffrey Dorman co-authored that report and joins me on the line from WUGA in Athens. Hello, Jeffrey. Good morning. Glad to be with you. Well, good morning. The president is pushing hard for the USMCA to be approved before Congress August break. Looking at the policy broadly, who is supposed to benefit? Um, Winners from the new USMCA would include both producers in the United States who will find it somewhat easier to sell their items in Mexico and consumers in the United States who may face slightly lower prices on an array of goods that we buy that come in from Mexico. So which sectors of the economy would be most affected? I mean, there's a lot of, there there aren't huge effects from this new deal because it's not that different from NAFTA, the deal we already have with Canada and Mexico. There'll be some gains, probably most noticeably in the auto industry, so we might see prices of cars come down a little bit. Um, But I think most people will never be able to tell the difference from before and after the new agreement. Where you and your co-authors do find real differences is substantial risk for fruit and vegetable growers. How so? so? Mexico has for a number of years been subsidizing their vegetable uh, and blueberry growers by providing them money to build greenhouses and tunnels to protect their crops so they have a longer growing season and can produce crops more easily and cheaply no matter what the weather is. That has been displacing a lot of produce grown in Georgia where it might cost us $14 to grow a box of squash. We could sell it for $16 a box and make a little money and then suddenly Mexican imports come in and are selling for $6 a box. So, and of course, our, keep going. Yeah, we, we just can't compete with those prices because their labor is much cheaper and they're not having to pay for their own greenhouses and tunnels. Blueberries, of course, a huge crop here in Georgia. Which other fruits and vegetables would be affected? So we're very worried about uh, blueberries, tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, uh, eggplants, squash, even broccoli and, and other things. Mexico is expanding into more and more of the vegetables that we grow in Georgia every year. So that's been happening for a couple of years now. How do, does it already affect Georgia's agricultural industry? It does. The The features of the new USMCA that the produce farmers in Georgia do not like are basically the same as what's already in NAFTA. So they're getting hurt now, and they will continue to be hurt under the new agreement. It isn't that the new agreement is worse for them. It's just that it's not going to make anything any better. So what kind of economic damage might this agreement create for Georgia growers? So on a, on a state scale, uh, $900 million of our sort of catastrophic scenario is not that much. And we're talking about eight or 9,000 jobs, which 
the state of Georgia has about four and a half million jobs, so those numbers seem small. But in rural counties that happen to be particularly heavy in vegetable production, um, we have a couple of counties in Georgia where this blow will be extremely heavy and will really hurt a couple of our rural communities. Which, one is, which ones in particular? So Bacon County, Clinch County, and Eccles County are the three that would take the bigger hits because those are counties that have smaller local economies to begin with and a lot of vegetable production. So what does it mean for a county to lose what what percentage do you think of income? Potentially 20 to 40 percent. Um, yeah. That's sort of a you know Great Depression era hit. I mean, that is going to mean closed shops on Main Street and around the square, uh, potentially you know, businesses closing because the the local farmers just don't have the money to spend in the local businesses. Okay, so other counties you cite, Appling, Brooks, Colquitt, Decatur counties, less of a drop here, but you just said $900 million. How did you arrive? What kind of modeling did you do to arrive at that number? Sure, we looked at the trend of production in Georgia and how it's going down and sort of projected, okay, if Mexico can bring things in at $6 that cost us $14 to grow, we're not going to even try and compete. We're just going to have to stop growing those things. And so we factored in the lost production to be expected, what that is worth, and then as those farmers get the money, then they spend it at a local car dealer or a restaurant or a gift shop, and then that gets some worker paid, and they spend money at a local gas station. And that. And so we sort of followed those repeated spending waves through the economy to come up with our numbers. All right. So you and your colleagues do propose that some provisions of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement be renegotiated, renegotiated rather. Which parts? So, no, we did not. We didn't advocate one way or the other. Uh, we did this study at the request of the Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association, and we said, if this is passed as is, Here's what we think could happen. We didn't take a stand on whether the USMCA should be passed or not. Um, but what the growers are looking for is a provision that allows them some sort of remediation in the face of seasonal damage is the sort of term in international trade. So when Mexico suddenly starts bringing in these really cheap imports, they'd like some protection from the government, similar to the way the government gave billions of dollars to soybean farmers last year when mm -hmm. they were hurt by the Trump administration's trade war with China. So you did consult with Georgia growers about the USMCA? Yes. How about Georgia leaders, even past ones, like U.S. Agriculture Secretary and former governor, Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue? What is his stance on this so far? Secretary Perdue is in charge of, if you will, sort of the entire bill's impact on agriculture as a whole. And so the Department of Agriculture and Trump administration's position is that the USMCA would be good for the country as a whole, which I think is true. It would be good for Georgia as a whole, which I think is also true. It would be good for Georgia agriculture as a whole. And I think that's probably true because our poultry industry, for example, benefits greatly from trade with Mexico. And our poultry industry is much bigger than our vegetable industry. So is that so, the purpose of your report, to sort of warn or give some kind of pause or create some precautions for those vegetable and fruit growers? It was simply to quantify for the vegetable and fruit growers that while trade deals produce winners and losers, and the winners generally win more than the losers lose, there are still losers. And in this case, the fruit and vegetable growers are the losers. 
and they, they just want people to hear them. They'd like to be heard. They'd like to perhaps get some adjustment to the deal that would make it a little fairer for them. But, but they understand the big picture and that this trade deal is probably good in its entirety. They're just hoping to get a little improvement in the parts that affect them. Jeffrey Dorfman, thanks so much for speaking with us. Sure. Glad to be with you this morning. You can find a link to his report on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement at gbbnews.org. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today we add two new additions to our Georgia playlist. Here are the rules. We ask artists to pick two songs written or performed by another Georgian, and they can't pick their own. Brandon Bush is a member of the rock band Train, and he's a studio musician who's worked on songs by John Mayer and Sugarland. Here are Brandon's picks for our Essential Georgia Playlist. People walking around like the world's about to end. And if you're asking me, man, I would agree these days we all feel small, my friend. It's getting hotter and hotter to hold our heads up high. My name is Brandon Bush. I'm a musician here in Atlanta, Georgia, currently out touring with Sugarland. And uh, music on my Georgia playlist, it's a tough, tough decision here. But uh, for me, it's Otis Redding, who uh, is certainly one of my favorite artists of all time and certainly tied to Georgia here. And I'm going to go with Mr. Pitiful, although I could do almost anything from his catalog. But Mr. Pitiful is the great, to me, uh, song about, it's Otis singing about Otis, and he does it so well. first introduced to Otis from a kid at a summer camp that I went to who uh, knew I was into music and he had this amazing CD box set of Otis Redding and he let me borrow it and I remember staying up all night at camp listening to this guy sing and think I need to know what this is all about and it's since then gone so deep in the world of the Stax catalog and it's what introduced me to Booker T who's become one of my musical heroes. Also pick new music, really, from Blackberry Smoke off their new record, Run Away From It All. And it, to me, is the epitome of kind of modern Southern rock being done, both with truth and honesty, but a great nod towards our history here of Southern rock in Georgia.
Blackberry Smoke I've discovered really through uh, being a fan of music here in Georgia and watching their rise and seeing them create this latest record that to me is them hitting full stride in their career. And when, when, you, when you love a band and they are continuing to grow, it kind of warms your heart because you know that they are at their, their peak of uh, what they can do. And this song, Run Away From It All, is such a, just a classic, great escapism summer hit. I've met them, but uh, yeah, they haven't asked me out yet. They're, they're, their keyboardist is named Brandon as well, so I, I think <laughs> that slot's filled. Musician Brandon Bush. You can hear his original music on SoundCloud. With Georgia Public Broadcasting's On Second Thought, I'm Virginia Prescott. I want to break free. Today marks 50 years since the Stonewall Uprising began in New York City. In the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn, a popular gay bar in Greenwich Village. While accounts vary of what exactly sparked the rebellion and violent clash, what resulted was a series of protests and street demonstrations. The LGBT community showed itself fed up with being targeted. These events led to the first gay pride parade in 1970. Stonewall is known as a landmark event in New York City's history and in the struggle for LGBTQ equality. And while folks across the country are remembering the impact of the uprising 50 years ago, we're going to examine life here in the South with a few LGBTQ folks who lived in Atlanta at these early junctures in the fight for equal rights. Lorraine Fontana is with us. She's a local social justice activist. Hello, Lorraine. Hi. Hello. And Abby Drew is also here in the studio. She's executive director of the Ben Marion Institute for Social Justice. Abby, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. And Dave Hayward, I understand you're rarely up at this hour, so That's glad right. to have I'm you. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> He's coordinator of Touching Up Our Roots. That's a community organization dedicated to recording and preserving Atlanta's gay history. All right, so 50 years since Stonewall, but there has and there was a burgeoning LGBTQ culture and activism in Georgia and elsewhere long before 1969. Dave, going to start with you. What are some early examples of gay culture in Georgia? Well, um, I rely upon the late Burl Boykin, who just passed away on October 6th. Um, he was basically my source for everything going on in the 60s. Um, and he talked about how uh, he and the late Shelby Cullum formed the Georgia Mattachine Society. And Mattachine was a forerunner 
of the, uh, the gay, gay organizations, LGBTQ organizations, and they would go down to City Hall and to the Capitol, and they would deliver petitions on behalf of LGBTQ rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as I know, that was the very first LGBTQ organization. Mattachine was a national group, and Georgia was a, a chapter. But Burr would uh, laugh about how he and Shelby Cullen were the sum total of Georgia Mattachine. <laughs> so that was pretty brave. I mean, they would go down to the state capitol and city hall and say, hey, you know, rights for all. Well, I'm reading about, you know, 1913, Anthony Oremma arriving on the scene, first known female impersonator. 1937, the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce distributes a tongue-in-cheek publication called Gay Atlanta. Who paid for the magazine? Ad revenue from this glowing clique of local drag performers. It really is a deeper history than we might think. Is there anybody knows about, uh, uh, this is something else that I found fascinating, Bishop John... Kazantz and George Hyde, who was a seminary school dropout, were shunned by their own churches, and they formed a church, the Eucharist Catholic Church, holding meetings at the Weinkauf Hotel, what we now know as the Ellis Hotel. Anybody hear of those days? Were you brought up with that? Well, I knew about George Hyde, um, and actually I had a a, a friend who was related to him, um, and uh, apparently that was the very first uh, church service. Uh, I think in 1946, and I think he was connected with Sacred Heart, the Sacred Heart Church as well. Well, that's so. I mean, really, really out there. Yeah, pretty bold. Abby, you were in Georgia on and off through the mid 1960s, and kind of discovering your own attraction to women at the time. Were you aware of any of this history of the gay community struggle? Well, I was here. If I was here in the early 60s, I was too young, so we won't. <laughs> but um, after 1965, I mean, I certainly was aware of the gay community. I was not aware of a lot of the struggles and things in the history. Uh, it had not really been a focus of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so my no, own old, no old folks saying, you have no idea what it was like for us back in the day. I stayed away from those old folks. <laughs> <laughs> those old folks. No, I did have friends, <clears throat> but I had friends who really shared a lot of what they were going through yeah. in the times, and that was real enough, and that a lot of things, you know, if you, if you were connected or knew folks, or you knew a yellow cab driver, you knew how to find bars. In yellow the cab driver. Yeah, yellow that cab was the drivers. <laughs> that, they, back then, if you wanted to find a gay bar in the 60s here, and you were visiting, you, um, you, they usually knew. Right, because they were taking you from hotels or whatever. And well, they were the course. ones. They were the ones you would ask safely. So you know, there were you get tactics, in a cab. right? You know, that, that's the thing. You you have these workarounds, and of course, there was a growing response to gay culture in the fifties and sixties. A yeah. lot of suppression, clashes, arrests, cheap jokes. How about those? Were you conscious of those, whether you were identifying as gay or not? How about you, Lorraine? Uh, I actually only hit Atlanta and Georgia in nineteen sixty eight, and I wasn't out at that point. Um, I was working in Vista, so I had connection with a lot of um, kind of social justice activists in terms of class and race, but <clears> not <throat> not the gay community. You hadn't at discovered all. that other facet. No, it of was I was completely. In fact, I hadn't even heard about Stonewall and what happened up there. Oh, that's even interesting. Even though I come from New York City. All right, so mm-hmm. that's interesting. How well was Stonewall covered at the time? Did you have a sense? Uh, the sense that I had when Stonewall happened, uh, number one, we didn't know about it. I was here in 1968. You know, uh, we didn't have, let's think about it, we didn't have internet. 
We didn't have instant messenger. We didn't have 24-hour news. And in fact, it was the last thing in my experience and with my friends that were even on our minds at that time. Um, I learned about it soon after from friends in New York with one telephone call. And to them, it was another raid. And this raid, the only outrageous thing about this particular raid, it went on for three days into a riot. Mm -hmm. And people fought back. And people fought back. That was a the <clears throat> huge moment. But I'm wondering that when you were growing up, what did you hear about what gay people did and what their culture was like? Was it even part of your awareness? Let David? me tell you a little story. Uh, my grandfather, who was just <clears throat> like a thousand percent Irish Catholic, uh, we were at a picnic one time with him and my mother. And, and he just said to us, he said, I want to tell you the most amazing story. This is probably about 1957, something like that. And he said, I heard of a woman who was married and had two children and left her husband and her two children for another woman. And we all just kind of went, wow. And it was like, <laughs> is that possible? Did people actually do that? So that was a lot of it. And to give my grandfather credit, he didn't really have any judgment about it. Mm. He just sort of said it was kind of like, is that, do people do that? <laughs> and so that was kind of the thing. I mean, talk about being closeted. A lot of times you see the movie Carol, and I think it really shows that with mm. Kate Blanchett right. and Rooney Mara and shows what that was like is that it was sort of like not even, not even on people's radar. Yeah, Todd Haynes' movie from a couple yeah. years ago. Mm -hmm. What did you think, Abby? Well, I, it made me have a, a, a memory when I was young. I grew up in Manhattan in an apartment building um, where our neighbors it was, you know, we had a mixed bag of everybody. And um, my sister's piano teacher was uh, a lesbian. She lived with her partner right next door to us. How, how did you know? You knew that yeah, there were two women I mean, living? My, our folks said they love one another and, and they're together. And then there was Al and Arthur upstairs. And um, we got our first poodle. I think this is hysterical. <laughs> we got our first poodle from a them. Poodle. That poodle, they, they put a little poodle. Imagine <laughs> the stereotypes we don't want to get into on this show. <laughs> but I think that's it. You know, that this for so long, there were just stereotypes because Depends it wasn't out, right? You know, yeah. they were just the sort of short little glimpses. But I'm going to want to go back to uh, the coverage of Stonewall because this is, you know, I think it was the New York Daily News. Homo nest raided, queen bees stinging mad. I mean, that's how they that's how they covered it. But back in June 28th, 1969, uh, the Stonewall Rebellion began. And, and Dave, you spoke with Marie, Mary Louise Covington, who lived in New York at the time. She wasn't at Stonewall that first night, but in the following days, she visited those who'd been beaten, arrested or both and explained their emotional as well as physical pain. Yes. Um, yeah. She was a, a native New Yorker and um, lived in Atlanta for a long time, just recently passed away uh, beginning of the year. But uh, she and she was a li lifelong activist and she heard about Stonewall, about the riot. And she and her friends went down the morning after, like about eight hours later, they went down to the jail, the tombs, and they brought food and clothing and blankets to the prisoners. And they knew that the police sometimes, especially like to especially humiliate the drag queens and mm -hmm. the cross-dressers, whoever, 
by stripping them naked and throwing them in the cells. Mm. So they brought the food and the clothing and the blankets down there, and they were able to get in into the. They were able to get through the lawyers that represented the prisoners. They were able to get those materials to the people. Um, so that was great. I mean, they were tenacious. This you is have the, to be. that's Dave Hayward. <laughs> also with me, Abby Drew, Lorraine Fontana. Let's hear from your conversation with Mary Louise Covington. The police were, you know, harassing. You know, beating them up, physically beating them. I mean, you get hit with a belly club, you've been hit. I mean, because they hit you with nothing but hate and strength behind that hate, you know? So a lot of them had been hurt. Yeah, an account of somebody who was helping out after the Stonewall riot. But again, uh, you know, not in New York necessarily, Lorraine, you were at the time, but if it wasn't really known, did Stonewall have much of an impact in the South or, and as much as we'd want to think? Yeah, I think uh, for me, I'm very quick to say in my opinion, because in my opinion, it did not um, at the time. Um, I think that uh, the climate in this country was duplicating enough the duplicity of discrimination, the duplicity of people feeling totally diminished for just being who they want to be, um, was contagious um, in a terrible way. So in the same way that... It was building. Right. And But this is interesting. Did it feel like New York was just another world, you know, someplace very far distinct and separate from the South? Anyone want to pick that up? I would I would say not. Um, I was at uh, college, George Washington University. I was a sophomore when it happened, and I remember reading about it in the New York Times. And I remember thinking about damn time because all these things were going on constantly, constant protest against the Vietnam War, the women's rights movement, the civil rights movement. And for me, I thought, well, it's it's about won't use the bad word. It's about time that we do this. You know, it's like, when when are we going to be standing up for our rights? For example, there were constant Vietnam War protests, but I don't ever remember seeing an LGBTQ contingent mm -hmm. marching against the war, particularly until after Stonewall. All right. Well, a little more than a month after Stonewall, a raid here in Atlanta. The venue, a screening of Andy Warhol's Lonesome Cowboys mm -hmm. at Ansley Mall Mini Cinema. Let's hear just a little bit from the film to get a sense of it. A scene where two cowboys Cowboys are discussing hairstyling, as you know, cowboys do. <laughs> Should just let it grow a little bit longer here, so you can, you know, pull it down and have What's a little. Of you want to treat me? Uh, of course, yeah. But you should, you know, just mess it up a little bit. Yeah. See, you send apart. It sets off your eyes. <laughs> the cowboys with a Manhattan accent. Um, for <laughs> Abby, you were there, right? The movie interrupted 15 minutes and what happened? I dropped my submarine sandwich. <laughs> I, was, uh, prof I was so surprised. Number one, we were all there anticipating some more culture. I was there for the culture, not the two fellows in the hairdo. I had enough to deal with my own hair. But when the lights went on, 15 minutes into it, mm -hmm. um, I didn't know what had happened. Well, I what had, was happened? Did, did they say? Well, they, then they did. I, I first looked up and turned around and saw four policemen in the, in the back row. And someone else yelled, what's going on? And another one said, we're being raided. Yeah. 
I guess I've seen too many movies. Police, yeah. this is a raid. Yeah. <laughs> they no, don't really they say that. They were as quiet as could be. And then I said, a raid. And at first I laughed. And then I didn't laugh. Well, uh, what, what because, happened? Because they started uh, directing us all. They wouldn't allow anyone to leave. And there were people who were trying to get up and run out. And there were a lot of men who were doing that. And they, they stopped everybody. And then I began to get concerned. Mm. Did you uh, get arrested? I did not get arrested myself, but we were lined up by rows. We were told to line up, and then they interviewed each of us by asking different questions. To me, the first question was, uh, "Does my where's my husband? And that is truly the question. And I was there with two straight friends of mine, a husband and a wife, and they looked at me and said, where is your husband? <laughs> How what? Did- <laughs> But people it's true, were I'm not being funny. This people is, were taken in, obviously. Yes, yeah. I watched people. I, I watched other individuals who weren't treated. All of us had our, our photos taken. Old flashbulb days. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like you had to show every ID. They then wanted to pursue where I worked, who I was, where I lived, how long had I been in Atlanta, and did the same with my my friends. But the ones we saw that had got arrested uh, were guys, and they were... Uh, some of them, they were turning around and, and patting them down, and they were angry. Um, uh, we were not subjected to that. I wasn't. Um, and then they let us go and said, you can leave now, but you might be called for a court appearance where you need to as a witness. Did, the, did you tell them where you worked at the time? I told them where I worked at and the did, time. And did you ever hear anything about that? No, did they nothing, contact them? Nothing. Um, we left the theater. And it was then that I saw what was happening and outside learned from some folks, uh, gay men and some wonderful drag queens who were on their own time trying to get to the movie, never made it inside. So they were the real witnesses. And they were the ones who said they are arresting them on anything they can think of. Plus, there was it wasn't unusual. I'm sure there were plenty of drugs. Whoever cleaned up the theater afterwards probably made a good find. <laughs> and I wonder if they have my submarine sandwich. <laughs> and they arrested, I think, the projectionist and the owner of the theater. Was that what happened? Yes, that was my uh, experience when I came out down. At very, it's a narrow, mind you, little little theater. It was long in the lobby, and George Ellis and his projectionist were behind the counter. We're going to hold that conversation because I really want to hear more about the, uh, you know, we've all heard of the Stonewall Raid. How about the Emsley Mall Raid of 1969? (laughs) Hearing about the experience of LGBTQ people during the 1960s when Stonewall was happening. We're going to take a short break and listen to the Velvet Underground's Lonesome Cowboy Bill. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Fifty years ago today was the beginning of what is known as the Stonewall Uprising in New York City. But while that was taking place, Georgia had its own struggles for equality for the LGBTQ community, which wasn't even named that yet. Abby Drew, Lorraine Fontana, and Dave Hayward were all in Georgia around the time, or shortly thereafter, and are here remembering what the fight for equal rights was like here in Georgia. And you're listening to David 
David Bowie's Rebel Rebel as we continue our conversation with this bunch of rabble rousers. All right, so let's get back to this raid in Atlanta. A couple months after Stonewall kind of galvanized the gay and lesbian community in Georgia. Bill Smith and Burl Boykin, who you remember, who you mentioned before, got together and started the Georgia chapter of the Gay Liberation Front. Dave, what did that early activism look like? Well, it was quite unruly <laughs> and the great unwashed. Actually, Bill Smith was uh, really an anomaly at the time because he was sort of a business person. And I recall going to my very first meeting of the Georgia Gay Liberation Front in 1971 when I first moved here. And I recall him chairing the meeting in a three-piece suit. And I was used to the Gay Liberation Front in Washington, D.C. that I helped start when I was a college student. And I thought, I'm not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's a three-piece suit. I never saw a three-piece suit at the uh, D.C. Gay Liberation Front. Um, I, you know, at the time, um, th- I was reading articles in The Great Speckled Bird, and they were talking about driving all the quote-unquote homosexuals out of Piedmont Park. Mm-hmm. And when oh, right. I, they, they put up big lights in Piedmont Park, didn't they, to yeah. try and prevent any um, untoward activity? Yeah. Well, they, they were having police purges. I mean, a lot of this, again, is Burl Boykin that I was, you know, it was my source. Um, but he said he said he felt that... Uh, we were basically a hunted community. Hmm. And um, he said that uh, it was really, it was, you know, it was very tense. Um, as a result of the Ansley Mall raid, Burl said that uh, they really started forming the Georgia Gay Liberation Front. Well, I want to stop you there because you yeah. compared these this social movement or this activist movement to the civil rights movement, to women's rights um uh, so were they doing the same kind of tactics, you know, registering voters? I mean, uh, talking about specific policies or laws. What, what, what was the strategy? There? Yes, yes, I would definitely. We, and we, when we talk about this, we really stand on the shoulders of the civil rights movement, women's rights movement, anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, and Burl uh, said that uh, I did an interview with him. Um, he said that they had a speaker's bureau and they actually went and talked to a Baptist church, he and Bill Smith, which was pretty out there for, I think, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, and and it was it was slow. Um, Bill Burr also told me that uh, they had their very first Pride March in 1971, mm-hmm. and the city of Atlanta, the city too busy to hate, refused to grant them a permit for the march. And then and then he said that they went to the Georgia chapter of the ACLU and said, "Well, can you please help us get a permit?" And the Georgia chapter of the ACLU told them, no, we will not because you were not a minority. Oh. So we had to really, and as I think you know, uh, my friends will attest, we had to really assert ourselves as we actually are a movement. This actually does qualify as human and civil rights. Um, because even within the, the left, uh, there was a the whole thing, as I understand, with the communist doctrine that if you were homosexual, you were a capitalist and you therefore, you know, could not be a communist. I'm it not was, sure about the equation. I, I don't understand that at all. But yeah. that was. But I remember that that we had to really assert ourselves, even within the left and the progressive movement, and saying that you know, yes, we are a, a, a movement, and we would be criticized for having drag queens and having glitter and color and stuff like that in the marches. And we just had to say, look, this is this is how we do it. Okay, that we're, we're serious about our rights, but we're also festive and colorful and having fun. At the same time, we're having marches and protests. So galvanizing yeah. moment. What you, yes. you well, see, Lorraine? Uh, I'm, I'm remembering, and I'm being reminded by <laughs> mm-hmm. what Dave said, that um, the left 
uh, on the activist movement outside the LGBT community, or which included some of us, obviously, was very diverse. Um, so although there were some Communist Party members and other organizations that were um, anti-gay in that way, you can't be a good communist and, and, um, and, uh, and be queer and be gay, um, but a lot of us uh, early on, uh, especially the women that I knew who helped form Alpha, the Atlanta Lesbian Feminist Alliance, were from those very movements and were part of the New Left, mm -hmm. were part of the anti-war movement, were part of the civil rights movement, and were part of the um, Atlanta Left Gay Liberation. Well, I mean, I imagine me. that's where they learned their ground game on some level. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it, to us, it was just a continuation of the kind of social justice community organizing and struggle that we felt we were part of. Well, that was also an interesting part of those social movements, the fractionalizing, you know, that once you got into the women's movement, then it was, well, how about the women of color? What's their place? You know, we know that Baird Rustin, one of the great architects of the civil rights movement, gay man thrown out a couple of times of, of Martin Luther King's inner circle for his sexuality. So, I mean, is that just the nature of the game? And how did it, how did it come together after that? Any thoughts on that? Uh, I, uh, this is Lorraine again. I, I can only go from my experience with what happened with me when I, like I said, I was 68. I first came here when I was a, a Vista. But when I came back, I went back to New York City for a few months when I was applying for grad school, ended up getting into Emory, so I came back to Atlanta because I really loved the people in Atlanta. Um, at that point is when um, I realized the connection that what did exist here, as it did in a lot of places in the country, we now call it intersectionality, but with many different movements. So uh, I know at the Great Speckled Bird in 69 is when the Women's Caucus formed. Uh, in 70, Atlanta Women's Liberation formed. In 71, the Gay Liberation Front and, and MCC in, 92, in 72 and Alpha in 72. Um, these women that I knew in the various New Left and uh, other movements here were the women who started coming out. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I came out in that, in that community setting. Even before Alpha started, um, there was a um, women's press collective called Sojourner Truth Press. Um, and they had been basically uh, given and handed um, the press itself by by a brother Barry Weinstock, um, a, who was also a social justice activist, and at that point, these were all women, like I said, many of whom started Alpha later, who were active in the New Left and anti-war and civil rights movements, and were coming into our own struggle. That is the struggle for um, lesbian rights, and gay you, rights. Do you think, however, I'm going to ask you this, Abby, do you think that treatment of gay men and women was different? I think so. How so? I, and one thing that was striking me, too, was let's not forget when we talk about well, who was included and who wasn't, that to me it was very complex and layered for anyone who happened to be black mm -hmm. in this city. It wasn't a time that we really looked at Hispanic or whatever, but the divisions and the cultures for gay men and lesbians, depending on whether you were white or black, really did uh, vary. How did you see that play <clears throat> out in treatment? Well, first of all, um, when I came here, uh, I had come from the Midwest, uh, a, 
directly. I had been teaching at a University of Illinois in the 60s, late 60s. The state of Illinois was one of the um, only at that point states where homosexuality was legal. So it was a it was a wonderful mecca for intelligent, great people to to come from. So when I came here, I came here in education. So I started seeing things in an inner different kind of circle. I came uh, down um, uh, to teach at a historically black university, AU Center, Morehouse and Spelman, um, then got connected to a lesbian and gay world that I, well, that was a wonderful uh, life-changing experience for me to learn more about them, having coming from being a Caucasian white woman. But um, I think that the, the differences in how people were treated, the lesbians in the late 60s when I was here, you basically had parties you could get under the radar. Yeah. The gay men would walk out on the streets, and, um, and there were a lot of concerns. There were a lot of concerns. The treatment, you talked about the parks. The park treatment started early, um, what was called the knee walks. And the knee walks were where the men went uh, who were going to meet up with, as we were talking about in the white community, straight married gay men. Huh who then could have whatever liaisons they could squeak out. And that continued. They were taking a body out a week at a, in a body bag for a while. And the botanical gardens came into it and then gated it and said they were destroying all the main, the oldest live oaks. And um, who knows? That's I, wa I wanted to tell a quick little story here. Um, in terms of our own community, we would discriminate against one another. And I remember I had uh, some oh, lesbian friends who would go to the Sweet Gumhead, a popular gay bar, and they had a whole strategy. Uh, my friend Joanne said that she and another white woman would go to the head of the line of the group of people they were in, and they would ask them for, like, one picture ID. And then they would wave to their friends in the back who were maybe Latina, uh, uh, African-American, and say, you only need one picture. <laughs> so that was their strategy. Because what they would do periodically, not only as we come had other bars, they would they would insist on multiple carding policies for people of color, yeah. and so so we we definitely would discriminate against one another. Unfortunately, that's not too many years after the Civil Rights Act passed, of right. course. Correct, and and also I I want to say that um, it was sad, having come from where I came from, that um, the, I experienced an extreme racism and anti-Semitism in the gay community in Atlanta um, that I'm not so sure doesn't still exist uh, in terms of uh, these these different divides. And for a, a good while, what you're talking about in the bars and, and bringing them in later didn't occur in the earlier days in those bars. There was absolutely no admittance to blacks. Oh, and they wouldn't even let them in? Not even at, at wow. Gumhead. Wow. Let, let me just identify Abby Drew there. You just heard speaking. Lorraine Fontana is also with us. David Hayward, all members of the LGBTQ community in Atlanta for a long time. <laughs> uh, we're reflecting <laughs> on, sorry, polite of you, on life in the South in the 60s and beyond and the formation of Georgia's own gay liberation and equality movements. I do want to ask you, though, Abby, you weren't just a professor, but then you were at City Hall, openly lesbian. Mm -hmm. How did you... How did you balance this, this less accepted identity at work? As you said, lesbians maybe could fly under the radar a little differently. But whose administration did you start in? I was, I started, I was hired in Sam Massell's, the end of his administration. Mm -hmm. And then with the two administrations of Maynard Jackson and then Andrew Young. 
And um, flying under the radar was never something I even thought about. No? No. So nobody I, I, ever, you know, people accepted this or just ignored your sexual I think identity? that, you know, when you're, sometimes the messages you give and how you present them um, are going to determine what people are thinking. If you're comfortable, chances are they'll be comfortable. But for me, there was a lot more uh, to talk about. And um, I think I was known first, you know, as Abby. There were no secrets of whatever. And there were concerns. And I found early on that I had a different kind of uh, vehicle to be an activist. And it wasn't on the streets. You mean policy, Abby? So you had? Did you have? I understand that you kind of had the ear of Maynard Jackson. That's a powerful position. It was a very a position that took a lot of responsibility, and um, it took also a lot of trust. So, what did that mean in terms of policy decisions, or the things that you spoke with him about? That you know, these things need to change here in Atlanta. Early on, and the things that I think I had learned. Um, that were a gift in terms of my own lifelong learning was to how to ask good questions and not to tell people what they need to be doing, but to ask what is the impact and, you know, what, what is the value um, in the types of treatment. There was a lot of issues that I had seen prior in the uh, late 60s, the raid, how police worked. All these things are dictated through a chain of, of folks. And um, I was very concerned. The treatment in Midtown of gay men was horrific. Uh, it later led on to the treatment of women in the bars, the few that there were, uh, where the police would wait and wait outside. And then if they were drunk, they'd get them on a DUI. Mm. And they would ask them, literally, uh, for a sexual favor, or they would take them downtown. Yeah. So there's, there was a lot to talk about to the mayor and uh, to begin to look at what else needed to happen in this city to write that, including the raids. And there was it was complex. Because I wanted to add that there were two other people at City Hall at the same time, Bill Smith. That's who right. Who was the co-chair of the Georgia Gay Liberation Front, along with Judy Lambert. And he had a, had a job at City Hall. And then May, uh, Mayor Massell appointed the very first open, I say the first openly gay anything, mm -hmm. Charlie St. John, uh, both have passed away, to the Community Relations Commission. What did so it, what did it mean John to have that there. representation in City Hall for the gay community? Well, I remember when Charlie was on the television, uh, they had... They interviewed him on camera on TV for being, you know, the Community Relations Commission. And that was huge. And it was like, wow, you know, I know you and you're my friend and you're on television. Would your average viewer know that he was gay? Or was oh, well, yeah, because he was around? identified that way. Uh -huh. Because it was saying, okay, here's an openly gay man who's appointed to the Community Relations Commission. So he's, he's the first <laughs> openly gay person. I say the first openly gay anything. First openly gay person appointed to, to a commission, Charlie St. John. Um, so, um, yeah, and it was, it was, uh, um, we also kind of wondered, you know, what Mayor Marcel was trying to do is this sort of throwing the dog a bone. Um, but, but at the same time, it was, uh, and also he was very active in the Georgia Gay Liberation Front. He was the one who actually got us the permit for the 1972 march. So the mm -hmm. first march in the streets, as opposed the to the first march, actually the second march, first march in the streets. But I would say that that was, uh, yeah, we sort of thought, oh, well, maybe we're getting somewhere. And we have this person who's a, you know, public spokesperson for us. Well, I could speak to you guys for a lot longer, but we have about half a minute left. Um, unfortunately, uh, Lorraine, just want to ask you, still very active in politics and social justice. In terms of the struggle for LGBTQ equality and rights, what do you see? Give me a couple of points that still need to be done. Well, I think people know that, uh, and from what Abby and, and Dave have said before, 
here in Atlanta, we never have really dealt with our own community's um, racism. And, and more recently, the movement in general, and I think it still happens everywhere, including Atlanta, um, there is that division between cisgender and transgender folks and the importance of the transgender um, liberation movement. So I think um, both those things and the intersectionality, meaning there are, we are everywhere. So we, yes, we are part of the struggles that happen in other communities because we are part of them, and that's important. Well, I'm leaving that to Diana Ross then. For now, Lorraine Fontana, thank you so much for speaking with us. Abby Drew, Dave Hayward, thank you so much for We're speaking with out. us. We're yeah. coming <laughs> out. We're coming out. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Allison Krausman is our intern. And our senior producer, Amy Kylie, Virginia Prime. Scott, have a great weekend and come see us again Happy with On Pride. Second Thought. <laughs>